comes to us this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1 will be starting at verse 13, reading to verse 21. That would be page 1014 if you have an ESV Bible. In this series on 1 Peter, we now transition to the first portion of the body of the letter. And uh, so Peter is now moving from his opening material into his uh, main point that he's making throughout this letter. So I invite you to stand. We'll read together uh, verses 13 to 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit may minister to us the word this morning, so that all that you have ordained for our good and for your glory may be accomplished. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You should be seated. In the summer of 2014, I was trout fishing on the White River in Arkansas with my dad and my brothers, and there was one moment when I looked up and saw across the water, perched on a tree branch, a bald eagle right there in the wild. And as I think of it, it's the only time that I can remember that I've seen a bald eagle in the wild. I've seen many of them in captivity before. In fact, you can see one at Cypress Grove Park right here in Jackson. To see an eagle in captivity versus seeing one in the wild is really to see two different things. On the one hand, you have a majestic creature, beautiful creature, and yet through some tragedy, some injury, has been rendered unable to survive on its own and has to be confined to a small space, cannot fly, cannot hunt, but must be cared for by human beings. On the other hand, you have a creature for which the sky, literally, is the limit. A creature that can soar at up to 10,000 feet. That can spot a rabbit on the ground at two miles away. That can pounce on its prey with a speed of up to 100 miles per hour. A creature that can build a nest high up in a tree that is five feet in diameter, where it can lay eggs and nurture little bald eagles in training. 
I want you to think of that picture of a bald eagle in its natural habitat, living according to the call of nature, being what it was designed to be. I want you to think of that. Let's call that eagleness. That eagle has the quality of eagleness. Now, here's an analogy for you. Eagleness is to the eagle what holiness is to the human being. Holiness is the destiny of our created nature. It is the goal of our God-given design. It is the full expression of our potential as human beings. And therefore, it is the only pathway by which we can hope to flourish in the joy for which we were created. Holiness is wholeness. And as such, it is imperative that we understand what this concept means biblically and how we are to pursue it. Biblically defined, holiness is simply consecration to God. It is being devoted to God, possessed by Him, belonging to Him fully. Think of when Moses met God at the burning bush. God's first words to him were, Take the sandals off your feet, for you are standing on holy ground. Now what does that mean? It means you are standing on ground that I have consecrated to myself. You are standing on ground that I have taken possession of as a space in which I now intend to meet with you. It is ground that belongs uniquely to God. And for us, therefore, holiness means we belong uniquely to Him, body and soul in every part of our being and life. And as such, holiness makes demands of us. And as modern Americans, we can hear that word demand and we can think of that concept holiness and it could have a negative connotation because of our impulse to think that anything that is demanding is therefore oppressive. We have an impulse as Americans to think that if something demands commitment, if it demands, if it makes obligations, if it ties me down in any way from pursuing what I absolutely want to do on my own and my own autonomous freedom, then it must mean it is bondage, slavery, and oppression. And if we let that vision of freedom and of the good life capture our imaginations, that vision that comes to us from our culture, we will have no motivation to pursue holiness. Holiness will be to us oppression. And we will simply drift along with whatever the culture tells us. You want to talk about slavery. That is slavery. Holiness makes demands, yes, but these are not oppressive demands. These are liberating demands. They liberate us to be what we were made to be. The man who pursues holiness, the man who is fully devoted to God with all of his life, is the man who knows what it means to be human in the fullest sense of that word, to be made in the image of God, to be there, to exist for God. Of course, in our fallen state, in our guilt and in our sin, and and here we are outside the, the holy place of Eden, in that condition, we can never hope to be holy in ourselves. Holiness is not within our power to produce or to grasp It must be given. It must come to us by grace. And that's why Peter 
in the opening section of his letter, he has just said in verses 3 to 12, verse after verse after verse of what God has done, extolling God for his mercy. According to his great mercy, in verse 3, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he goes on for, for all of those verses, 3 to 12, laying out this is what God has done and this is what our hope is as a result. And this is what our new identity is in Christ. And all of what he's about to say as he now transitions into the main body of the letter, where in this first part, uh, from here to chapter 2, verse 10, he's going to be showing his readers, this is what your new identity is in Christ. But here in this very first part of that section, he is going to give commands for the first time in this letter. For the very first time, you encounter command statements, and you can count them in verses 13 to 21. There's three or four of them, depending on how you choose to count them. But Peter is now transitioning into commands, but everything he commands us to do is rooted in what he has just said about what God has already done. That's why he begins, verse 13, with the word, therefore. Therefore, because of the new identity you have in Christ, because of the grace of God that's already been shown to you, because of the new hope you have, you must then live a new way of life, a a life that pursues holiness. And so I'm going to unpack the passage this morning by looking at the main command that Peter gives us, which is that we be holy. Talk through that. What does that mean? How does Peter uh, show us what he means by that? But then recognize as well, Peter doesn't just say be holy and then leave us without any direction for how to do that. He actually gives us particular virtues, particular affections and patterns of thinking that we are to seek to cultivate in the pursuit of holiness. And so we're going to unpack those as well in the second point. But we'll start in the middle of the text with the main command and then we'll look back at the beginning and the end to see how we are to pursue holiness. Holiness. So that brings us here, there, here to the main command. Be holy as God is holy in verses 14 to 16. Be holy as God is holy. God is a God of abundant grace. He has crossed the infinite chasm between creator and creature to embrace us even in our sin, rebellion, and guilt. He has made us his own forever, even though we are godless sinners in and of ourselves. And yet in doing so, God has not compromised his own righteousness or character in the least. He has remained true to himself in all things that he has done for us. He has not minimized, he has not overlooked, he has not in any way failed to answer our sin. Every sin tells a lie about God. Every sin is a defiance of His authority, is scoffing at His majesty, is scorning His infinite worth, and God will not allow that lie to go unanswered. God will answer every sin that has been committed against Him, and He will defend the honor of His name because He is holy. He is ever true to His own character. And because He is, that means that those who belong to Him cannot belong to Him and to sin at the same time. 
It is simply impossible. God is true to himself. Therefore, he cannot be Lord over us and sin be Lord of us at the same time. And so what should our lives look like as those who have been redeemed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Peter tells us in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Negatively speaking, holiness is separation from sinful patterns of life. And in the first century, among his readers, there were plenty of those in the culture uh, for his readers to be dragged into. In fact, they had been part of them before. The, The passions of your former ignorance, the desires that you formerly had before you knew Christ that were rooted in ignorance of the true God and of what He demands and of what He offers in a loving relationship of obedience to Him. You see, just like every other culture that's ever been on the face of the planet, first century Greco-Roman culture was dominated by desire for three things. Money, sex, and power. And those three things, they're not bad things in and of themselves. In fact, properly ordered, properly directed to the glory of God and the good of others, these are blessings. But in our fallenness, we do not naturally order ourselves to God rightly. We order ourselves wrongly. We seek uh, selfish ambition and gain. And so we use money, sex, and power for our own selfish ends in ways that dishonor God and dehumanize others. And that was the case in first century Greco-Roman culture. That is still the case today among human beings. Every human society has been driven by desires. And those desires often manifest themselves in sin. And yet the way a culture is set up and structured can either restrain or feed those desires. And in the first century culture to which Peter's writing, there were many structures of society that indeed fed sinful desire. You can think of the pagan temples and the pagan worship practices that were often uh, tied to sexual immorality in particular and how these were respectable practices of the day. These were encouraged in their day. And to uh, the, 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 the praise of God and because of His grace to us, we live in a society that is on the other end of the transformation of Christianity, having its cultural impact to the point that you can walk through the streets of Jackson and not see a pagan temple, and not see temple prostitutes out there drawing worshipers in. And those are blessings. Those are good things, and we should thank God that culture has changed. And in some ways, our culture has progressed uh, so as not to feed those sinful desires, and yet we can see other ways that our culture is becoming more and more post-Christian, more and more becoming a kind of culture that is, instead of restraining our natural sinful desires, would seek to feed them. It used to be the case, I believe, that if a young man and a young woman were married, it was expected that they would be entering into that marriage as virgins, it used to be a cultural expectation. That wasn't always the case, of course. Everybody, every culture has its, has its failures. But that was at least the public expectation. And if it were ever found out that that were not the case, that one or both were not sexually pure when they were getting married, that could become a scandal. That, there was shame attached to it. 
And that shame had a, had a role to play in society of restraining sin. We now live in an age that has reversed that completely. Now, for a young man and young woman to get married and for them to be sexually pure is considered shameful. Is considered ridiculous. You're a religious fanatic if you actually uphold that standard for sexual purity. And so we live in a culture that that feeds a desire for sexual immorality in that regard. Or it used to be the case that if you if you wanted to access pornography in this society, you had to go to a part of town that respectable people didn't want to be seen in. You had to go to a particular store and, and enter into a transaction with another human being who knew what you were buying, and it was a, a shameful thing, and there was that restraint that kept many from doing it. But today completely reversed. Today, you can access pornography anywhere, anytime, on virtually any device in privacy. We have a culture that, in many ways, is coming into a post-Christian ethic that is feeding our sinful desires rather than restraining them. Holiness demands that we separate ourselves from these things. It demands that we properly order our desires for money, for sex, and for power in ways that glorify God and that build up our neighbors. But holiness is not just about what we don't do. Holiness is about what we actually devote ourselves to. And of course, that is obedience to God. Peter addresses his readers as obedient children in verse 14. And he says in verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Every part of your life is to be obedient to God, is to be under His lordship, so that you bring every part of you in submission to Him. Full devotion. You know, back then in the the first century, religion and ethics were actually two different things. Uh, It was considered, if if you worshipped this God, this God, and this God, that was a religious thing you did. That was more like a business transaction you had with these gods, but it didn't affect the rest of your life. The rest of your life was just whatever you wanted to do. And Peter's not saying to his readers, all right, you used to offer sacrifices over here to to Zeus and Artemis and -and so-and-so. I just want you to stop that and you just substitute new religious practices but then continue on with the rest of your life the way it was. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you used to practice these religious worship. You used to offer sacrifices to these gods. You used to participate in these forms of worship. And without knowing it, that affected everything else about your life. Now you belong to a new Lord and that too affects everything else about your life. That too determines the course of the rest of your life in every part, in your business, in your family, in your interpersonal relationships, everything is now given to the Lord. C.S. Lewis writes of it this way, comparing God to a sea, he says, this is my endlessly recurrent temptation, to go down to that sea and neither dive nor swim nor float, but only dabble and splash careful not to get out of my depth and holding on to the lifeline which connects me with my things temporal. Of course, that lifeline really is a death line. It is not so much of our time and so much of our attention that God demands. It is not even all our time and all our attention. It is ourselves. 
For each of us, the Baptist's words are true. He must increase and I must decrease. He will be infinitely merciful to our repeated failures. I know of no promise that he will accept a deliberate compromise. Holiness is about wholeness. The giving of our whole selves to God. And why should we do this? Peter tells us in verse 16, Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. A quote that comes right out of Leviticus 11.44, similar statements throughout the book of Leviticus. Spoken to the old covenant people of Israel, Peter now saying, that was actually written about you. You who belong to the new covenant find the fulfillment of that demand in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to be holy as God is holy because God is holy. And I think the connection there is God is holy and God is our Father. We as His children are to reflect His character because in an ideal family, the child should reflect the character, the values, the desires of the father. And in the first century, that was even more the case because you were pretty much predestined, if you were the son in a family, to do whatever it was your father did. If your father was a carpenter, you became a carpenter. If your father was a metal worker, you became a metal worker. And Peter's already made reference to the fact that we are obedient children in verse 14, he's going to refer to God as our Father again in verse 17. He seems to be tying this closely together that like Father, like Son. As God is, so must we be as well in all of our character. So often, when we formulate our dreams for the future, we we dream of things, we hope for things that are tied to our circumstances. We dream of a rich and fulfilling marriage of children who grow up to know and to love the Lord. We dream of a a vocation where we are able to use the gifts God has given us to serve others and to build them up and to, to advance the cause of the kingdom and to know that our life counts for something in that endeavor. And we should dream about all those things. They are good They are right. We should pursue them. We should pray for them. And yet, did you know that even if those things don't pan out the way you hope, even if because you cannot control circumstances, your circumstances don't form themselves the way that you pray and hope they will, you can still live the good life. Because the good life is defined primarily as the pursuit of God. That is what life is about. Holiness. The pursuit of God and whatever your circumstances are. If your marriage is not what you hoped it would be. If your children are not what you dreamed they would be. If your vocation didn't turn out the way that you want You are still in a position to pursue God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and might. That is the good life. That is the wholeness for which you 
were created. That is what it looks like to soar like an eagle 10,000 feet above the ground. Holiness is what we were created for. So be holy as God is holy. You may be saying, now that's, that sounds great, Peter. I would love to do that. But what do I, I can't just will myself into it. My, my heart is sinful. I can't just suddenly decide, all right, I'm going to be holy today. How do I do it? And fortunately for us, Peter recognizes that we need instruction. And he gives it to us. He shows us there are particular virtues that you need to cultivate in your own heart that are going to aid you in the pursuit of holiness. And those virtues, or those affections as you might call them, they are hope and fear. And we're going to talk about those in turn today. Hope and fear. So that brings us to the second point then. How can we pursue holiness? How can we pursue holiness? There's going to be two parts uh, to answering this question. How can we pursue holiness? And the first part is this. By setting our hope fully on the grace to come. In verse 13. By setting our hope fully on the grace to come. Now, what does hope have to do with holiness? What's the connection between hoping for something and pursuing God as opposed to sin? Think about how sin works when it lures you. What is it doing? It's it's making a promise. It's offering a payoff. It's telling you, I offer you some kind of joy, some kind of payoff, some kind of satisfaction. And maybe that payoff is really nothing more than, for a little while, this will dull the pain of facing real life. And you can easily get addicted to any kind of behavior, any kind of action that dulls pain. For some, they'll seek medication and alcohol or drugs. Others will seek to medicate the pain of life with pornography or sexual immorality. Others might just nurse a grudge against someone else because, you know, there's something that just feels good about uh, thinking that someone else deserves to get it. Some kind of ego boost that I get when I can put down others in my mind. Or maybe it's... uh, Forcing yourself to throw up after you eat because you're, you're looking for this ideal body image. And that's how you medicate. Or maybe it's simply long, mind-numbing hours spent on social media doing nothing productive and neglecting weightier matters. Whatever it may be, sin is offering you some kind of payoff to run after it. Now, What if, in that moment when sin comes after you, comes calling for you, come come and experience the payoff that I can offer? What if your hope is already firmly planted in something that you know is far, far better? Doesn't the promise of sin become pathetic by comparison? If your infinite joy is already wrapped up in something else, sin cannot get through a hope that is that secure. So what is the hope that Peter tells us to set our minds on? Look at verse 13, the end of the verse. He says, set your hope fully 
on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on what God has promised will be yours when Christ is revealed from heaven. He has already defined this as an inheritance in verse 4 that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. God has already destined us to inherit a new creation with Him forever. Uh, It's the hope that that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, 8, where He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Set your hope fully on the grace to come. Now you might think, is it it really worth doing that? Is, Is that a true hope? Is that something that I can actually bank on? Well, Peter's already told us, In verse 3, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is, I think what he's saying is the hope is alive through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Christ, a past event, an objective historical fact, is the ground and basis for us to know we have a certain inheritance in the future. So looking to the past of what God has already accomplished, let us set our hope fully on what is to come, And live with the end in view. When our hopes are riveted by this vision of the future, sin will seem to be so small by comparison. But this is a fight. This is not something you just drift into. If you just drift through life, the currents of culture are going to take you wherever they want. Because our culture does not hold this up before us as hope. Our culture holds up so many other things as our hope. And they're all the things that are in front of us today. Why do you think cable news and talk radio and social media are dominated by political discussion? Dominated by the daily headlines of this and that going on in the political world. Why do you think that is? It is because as a culture, our hopes are wrapped up in the political doings of day-to-day American life. We have set all our hope on this or that politician. As Christians, we've got to fight that noise. And we have to be active and engaged in setting our hope on the grace to be brought to us. And how do you do that? Well, Peter, Peter mentions the fight in the first part of verse 13. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. He uses two participles there that are tied to the main verb of set your hope fully. So if you prepare your mind for action, the, the, the actual Greek wording he uses is girding up the loins of your mind. Now in that day, most people wore robes. And so if you were a man and getting ready to do anything that involved uh, free movement, like going outside to work, or you, you were needing to go run somewhere, or you perhaps were even going into a fight, then uh, you would gird up your loins by pulling your robe up between your legs and tucking it into your belt. And that gave you more freedom of movement. In our day, Peter might have said, rolling up the sleeves of your mind, which communicates intentional effort, focus. The same is true of the other image of being sober-minded, that is, walking in intentional sobriety in your thinking. If you are not sober-minded, you're allowing outside influences to determine the course of your thoughts, just like alcohol would do to your body. It would cause you to lose control of your faculties. 
So here Peter is saying, you must be intentional about cultivating this hope because it will not happen naturally. So how do you do it? Well, the habits of your life will determine where your hope is set. The habits, the things that you plan to do and you actually do day to day, the habits of reading the scriptures and hearing what God has promised, of of turning that into prayer before Him, the habits of gathering regularly with the church to be here at the foretaste of the coming kingdom. These things are essential for your hope to stay fixed on the grace that is to be brought to you. If you do not cultivate these intentional habits and some others that we could talk about, if you do not intentionally cultivate these kinds of habits, your life will not be one of setting your hope on the grace to come. Tim Keller writes, human beings are hope-shaped creatures. How you live today is completely shaped by what you believe about your future. So take care that you cultivate biblical thoughts about your future. And then let that shape the way you live now. We pursue holiness by setting our hope fully on the grace to come. And then second, we pursue holiness by living in reverent fear of God. By living in reverent fear of God in verses 17 to 21. Here in verse 17, Peter gives his last command in this text. He says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, why should we conduct ourselves with fear? Peter actually gives two reasons in these verses. He's already meant, I've already read uh, in verse 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially. So God is an impartial judge. And that's a reason to fear him, Peter says. He's an impartial judge in that he will answer, as I said earlier, every sin. And so this is to guard us from the presumption of thinking that, well, I know that I've got the inside track with God. I know that I belong to his family. I know that I have the promise of forgiveness. So sin is not a big deal for me. I can sin and and it'll all be okay. Peter reminds us, no, God is an impartial judge. He's not going to overlook sin because you think he's partial to you. So that's uh, that's one reason. And and, uh, Karen Jobes, in commenting on this verse, she writes, The pagan life that God abhors will be no less abhorred if it is lived by one who professes to be a Christian. And I think that is absolutely right. Peter is is laying out here a doctrine that's, I think, throughout the New Testament, a doctrine of judgment according to works. Now, when I say that, I want to be very clear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying judgment on the basis of works. Those are two different ways of phrasing that. If we were to be judged by God on the basis of our works, then we would be in a position now to say, I've got to earn enough favor with God at the last day to be accepted into heaven. And the the New Testament is very clear. We have no hope of doing that. That our justification is by faith alone. And that, in fact, even when we are united to Christ by faith, the final judgment has already been pronounced over us. We are not guilty. We are righteous in Christ alone. Alone, and for his sake alone. The future judgment to which we look forward for the believer is not the moment when God is going to determine our destiny. He's already done that. 
And yet, there is a New Testament teaching of, even for believers, a judgment according to works. That is, a judgment where our works are brought into full view. And those works will either vindicate our faith as true, or they will, they will reveal that our professed faith was a lie the whole time. Because if you truly believe the promises of God, if you truly trust what He says, you will want to obey Him. How ridiculous would it be to say to your doctor, I trust all that you will tell me to do because you're the expert. You've got the experience and the education. Tell me what to do. And then your doctor tells you to take a medicine and you refuse. Well, you don't trust your doctor. In the same way, if you trust God, you're going to want to obey him. And then on the last day, your works will either reveal that your faith was there and real or will demonstrate that it wasn't. That's one reason we should conduct ourselves in fear, because God is an impartial judge. Another reason that Peter gives in the remaining verses, 18 to 21, is because God has paid a high price for our redemption. The price God has paid, he says in verses 18 and 19, is is this. We are to conduct ourselves in fear, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, we think of gold and silver as valuable, durable things, and yet Peter calls them perishable. They are valuable, and yet they belong to this age, and they will ultimately pass away along with everything else in this age. We were ransomed for God, not with anything in this age that passes away. We were ransomed to God At the price of the life of his son. Which is far more valuable than all the silver and gold in the world. God has paid the highest price imaginable. And that price is not something that he just off the cuff decided one day that he was going to pay. No. In verse 20, Peter tells us that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But was made manifest in the last times. For the sake of you. For Christ to be foreknown refers to his being foreordained in the plan of God from eternity past. God had this plan in mind to exalt his son as our redeemer before the world was ever created. And then he says at the last time manifested, we've been in the last days ever since Christ came, the climactic point in history. And so from eternity past to the climactic moment in history, God's plan has been leading up to this. This one event of the giving over of His Son to death and His resurrection for our redemption. This is the centerpiece, the point to which all history is headed. And thus Peter is telling us that this is a weighty matter. Now look back at verse 18 to see something that we didn't mention a while ago. In light of this weighty matter of God giving up His Son to redeem us, notice how Peter phrases it. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. The futile ways, the empty patterns of life that you inherited. Sin. You were ransomed from that. You were bought at a price to come out of that. 
And so it's as though Peter is saying to us, don't you see how fear is an appropriate response to this? Fear that you would ever do anything to make light of what God has done for you. That you would ever run into sin that God sent His Son to redeem you out of. Because if you do that, what are you saying to God? You are telling Him, I scoff at what your Son died to accomplish. I scoff at the goal for which you gave your son for me. Peter says, feel the weight of what God has done and do not make light of sin. Now I say we should feel the weight of sin. Yes, feel the weight of sin every time it tempts you. But when I say that, I don't mean feel the weight of your sin that you've already committed so that it drives you to despair. It's not at all the message of the New Testament. The New Testament tells us to feel the weight of our sin so that we will turn from it and we'll come back to the cross again and again and seek God's forgiveness and bring to Him a heart that desires to obey in repentance. Now, you may be wondering, how can I live in both hope and fear? Don't they cancel each other out? It would seem like they do. Hope seems to be the opposite of fear. And you could take one and use it to cancel the other out. And if you did, you fall into a false teaching. So if you take hope, you say, I have the hope of the assurance of, a, of life to come. Therefore, I have no need to fear the weightiness of sin. Then you will be led into sin. You will, you will not take sin seriously. You will, you will live what, what is called easy believism. And that's a false teaching. On the other hand, if you say, well, I've got to feel the weight of sin. I've got to feel the fear of God. And so I can't really have any hope that he's for me. I can't have any hope that he's my father. I can't have any assurance of eternal life to come. And so I've got to view God more like a judge who, who may or may not come around on my side in the end. And I'm telling you, if you relate to God that way, he's going to be so distant from you, so cold to your contemplation that just to find comfort, you will find ways to ignore Him. You will find ways to get away from Him. And you will, in in that scenario, have no incentive to pursue holiness. We need both. We need the hope and assurance that we are His children and the fear of ever making light of what He's done for our redemption. And together, these things can kill sin within us. What would, it, what would that look like? Well, in my hometown, on the way to my high school, there is a, a curve in the road, in the highway, and it's just about 90 degrees. It is very, very sharp. And the, the sign that tells you of the curve that's coming recommends that you go around that curve at 15 miles an hour. Now, you've seen the, the curves in the highway with the recommended speed, and, and that's not a speed limit. That's just a recommendation. You know that, right? Um, you're probably used to, if you're an experienced driver, you know, you, you can take most curves faster than the speed sign recommends going around because you, you know the curves, you know they're not as bad as, as many of the signs say. When I get to that curve, when I would drive through that curve every day going to school, even to this day if I go around it, I always slow down to 15 miles an hour every single time. Because I've been around it enough to know if I'm going faster, I may very well end up in the ditch. 
So you might put it this way, I respect the curve. I appropriately fear what would happen if I ignored what the sign told me to do. So there's fear, there's respect for the weightiness of that sign and what it's telling me. And at the same time, did I drive to school every morning agonizing and sweating and thinking, am I going to die today on my way to school? I may not actually get there. This is so terrifying. What am I going to do? No, I didn't do any of that. I I was assured every day as I left the house, I'm going to make it to school. And, And I did every single day. I made it to school. And it's that way in the Christian life. We can know with assurance we're going to get where God has promised. Because it rests on his promise. We can know that, that our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, and that we are being kept by God's power, and that we are secure in his love, and nothing will separate us from that. And because of that reality, we take seriously the warnings he gives us. Because it is in part through those warnings, through taking sin seriously, through feeling the weight of what it would be like to disregard his warnings that we obey. And that is one of the means he uses to get us to where we're going. Peter tells us to be holy as God is holy. And then he tells us how to do it. Live with a full hope in the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ and fear ever making light of what God has given to ransom you from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. I hold out holiness before you as an absolute demand, a demand that that asks everything of you. But it is not an oppressive demand. It is liberating, for it is in holiness that we find the wholeness of life for which we were created. So the question then is, how do I respond to this call to holiness? Well, There are two kinds of people in here. You are either under the lordship of sin or you are under the lordship of Christ. And if you are still captive to sin today, then your response must be to make a decisive break with that and come to Christ. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So I call call upon you, if that's you, turn from your sin, repent, Come to Christ and identify yourself with Him through baptism. Come and and talk to uh, one of us about being baptized. If you are a believer who has made that break with sin, you do belong to Christ, and you you indicate that you belong to Christ by belonging to a church with which you are walking in fellowship. If that's you, then I invite you to respond by eating and drinking again at the Lord's table and showing once again that your faith and your hope are in what Christ alone has done for you. Because that is the only hope by which we will be made holy. Would you take a moment of silence then, bow and bow your head and close your eyes, and we'll uh, get ready to serve the bread and the cup.